Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. This week, we're beginning a new series, and we're looking at the book of Esther. And so if you'd like to turn along in your Bibles, you can turn to Esther chapter 1. Now, I want to release you right now. It's okay to go to the table of contents. Um, Esther's not an easy book to find. It's maybe not one that you're right on the tip of your tongue. Oh, I know exactly where Esther is. And so if you need to go to the table of contents, if you need to, to use the search thing in your Google or in your Bible app, that's okay. But we're going to be taking a look at the book of Esther. And Esther's a really unique book in the Bible, and we're going to explore why it's so unique over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at this story for about six weeks, and we're going to be seeing some unique things that that make Esther really stand out in the Bible. But I'm going to need your help as we go through all of this, because the book of Esther is so unique that as we walk through some of these things, we're going to really have to put our trust and our faith in each other, that we're really working with the word of God here. That, that the story is, is so, there, there are some really rough and difficult moments and there's some things that take place inside of the book of Esther and some things that we're going to walk through that we're going to have to come back to and be like, this is God's word. And so as we travel through this book, I want to just encourage you and, and encourage us together to, to understand that as we look at God's word, it's going to come alive in a new and hopefully unique way. Most of us, if we talk about the book of Esther, kind of the one thing that we know, the, the one sort of place where we can plant our flag is for such a time as this. That's the phrase that we, we may know, that you may remember coming. Perhaps God has made you queen for such a time as this. And that's kind of the, the thing that we hold on to and the, the theme that we often know about the book. But that comes in chapter 4. And Esther's 10 chapters long. And so there's a whole lot more to this story than just for such a time as this. But as we dive into this book, we're going to encounter some things that are a little unique and a little bit different. And so we're going to take this, this journey together. But before we dive really deep into the book, and we're, gonna, we're just going to be looking at Esther chapter 1 this morning. But before we do that, I want to set some context for you. Because to understand Esther, and to understand how we get to the beginning of Esther, we need to understand where we sit in history. Is, is it's very important, and as we move through these weeks, we'll understand together why it's so important. But we're going to begin our, our little history lesson. Now, I know that history is exhilarating. And I know that you're all really excited to dive into history. And, and, all, and, so, uh, and, and so I'm going to encourage you to just like stay with me and not get too excited and not, not get too, wow, this is so amazing. Um, but just hang in with me as we go through all of this. But in 930 BC, Israel has essentially a civil war where the country of Israel is split into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom continues to go by Israel. The southern kingdom goes by Judah. And what you need to know is that there's conflict between the two. There's conflict with outside nations. There's lots of conflict that takes place as they're separated. But we're going to jump forward to 568 BC because that's where the southern kingdom, so the, the, the southern, there, there's 10 tribes that make up the northern kingdom, two tribes that make up the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is taken by Babylon under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that may ring some bells for you. You may have in the recesses of your mind or in the front of your mind. That's the story of Daniel. Daniel in the lions and King Nebuchadnezzar. I know that. And that's where that takes place, is as the southern kingdom is taken by Babylon, they're taken into captivity. Our kids upstairs are learning all about the book of Daniel, and they're learning about this time period where, where Israel or where Judah is taken into captivity by, ne by Nebuchadnezzar and by Babylon. But for the purposes of our story, we're going to jump about 100 years later in that story, because in 485 BC, Babylon is conquered by Persia. So in 586 BC, Babylon is the big, the big dogs. They're, they're out to conquer the world. But in 485 BC, a bigger dog comes along and swallows up the, what everybody thought was the big dog. And Persia comes along and they take over as much of the known world as pretty much anyone ever had up until that point. And we have a new king, a new ruler of the empire, and his name is Xerxes. But depending on your translation, his name could also be listed as Ahasuerus. And this is a theme that's going to take place throughout the book of Daniel, is that depending on your translation, and even not depending on your translation, people and places can have multiple names. So depending on your translation, you may read Xerxes, or depending on your translation, you may read Ahasuerus. Now what you need to know is Ahasuerus is the Hebrew translation of his name. Xerxes is the Greek translation of his name. And so it just depends on when your Bible was translated, which language they wanted to translate his name too. We're going to stick with the Greek translation because it's easier for me to say Xerxes than it is to say Ahasuerus all of the time. So, but they're the same guy. But this is the moment when our story takes place. Is uh, Israel has been in captivity, for, or Judah has been in captivity for about 100 years, and the people who they're in captivity to has just changed. That instead of being in captivity to the Babylonians, they're now in captivity to the Persians, and this King Xerxes is now in charge. So the other thing that I want to do before we dive into our first message is to just look at some of the main characters that we're going to re look at as we move through the book of Esther, the, the main people that you need to be familiar with so that as we move through this book, you have some context. And so we begin with Xerxes. At this point, and we're going to read this later, he's been king for about three years. Um, and his empire was huge. The verse, first verse in Esther tells us that his empire stretched over 127 provinces. And depending on your Bible, um, again, this is another time where depending on your translation, it might say a few different things. Um, but essentially, it, it will say either his territory extended from India to Ethiopia, or it might use the word Kush, but it's the same place. But if we want to put it in like, modern geographical understanding. Um, his empire stretched all the way from Pakistan, 
all the way through the Middle East and down into the Sudan in Africa. And so if you want to understand, at least in modern geographical terms, Pakistan all the way through down into Sudan and Africa. It was a tremendously large empire. And as such, he was the most powerful and important man in the world, and he lived like it. Is he embraced his power and he embraced his importance. He, humility was not a word that you would use or associate with him. In fact, you would probably use all the other words. And we'll dig into all of that in a bit. The next person we're going to meet is Vashti. Vashti is Xerxes' queen. And she's not in our story for very long. Um, she, she doesn't play a role throughout the whole book. But she does play an incredibly important role at the beginning of the book. And it's an incredible choice, uh, uh, a moment where, where her, uh, she's going to take the, this big, bold choice, and it's going to put into motion the entirety of our story. The next, and I forgot to put his name on the list, but the next person we're going to meet is a man named Mordecai. Um, and he was the descendants of exiled Jewish people living in Persia. And we're going to talk more about what that means, because there's actually a ton to unpack there that we don't even necessarily understand. But for Mordecai to be where he was, when he was, means a whole bunch of things that have taken place that we can understand in his life. But what's most important is that we know that Mordecai is the older cousin and the adoptive parent of the star of our story, Esther. So they're cousins, but he's much older, and so he's adopted her like a daughter. The next man we're going to be introduced to is a person named Haman. And Haman is wealthy, he's influential, he was a powerful court official, and we're going to find out that really he's about the second in command in all of Persia to Xerxes. He's his main advisor. But he's also a terrible, hateful, conceited person who hates the Jewish people. And again, that's going to be an important part in understanding our story. And the last part of our story, the last person, is Esther. Esther, the star of our story, Esther's Hebrew name was Hadassah. And so depending, again, on your Bible, you may read Esther, you may read Hadassah. They may be used interchangeably as you go through that, but you can know that it's the same person. But her parents have died, and she's been taken in by her cousin, and she ends up living in the capital city of the Persian Empire, a place called Susa. Whew. That's a lot of background, hey? Are you wishing you didn't come to church this morning? I could have I I stayed home. Um, no, and so the, the, I know that's a lot of background and a lot of names. Just wanted to give a little bit of an understanding because we're going to walk, as we walk through this book, we're going to discover all kinds of stuff and wanted to just make sure that if you're wanting to do anything at home or whatever, to answer some questions. But we're going to start at Esther chapter 1. So hopefully you've had time to find the book of Esther if you want to follow along. But we're going to read at the beginning of Esther, it says this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So we talked about that earlier. Pakistan to Sudan. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Susa, the capital city, is, or is the capital city of his empire. And in the third year, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media. I know it looks like Media, but it has to do with the Medes. The princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. 
So he's this big, important person, and what we read about him is he's decided to throw himself a party. That's the next thing that we discover. He decided to throw himself a party, but what we discover is this isn't a normal party. Take whatever you think about what a party could be and throw it out. Because in verse 4, we read this. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. 180 days. Friends, that's a party. Like, that just keeps, like, you've been at parties where you're like, wow, this is getting a long time now. Like, you know, especially if you got little kids and you throw them a birthday party and like 90 minutes into it and you're like, this is getting long. When are their parents coming back? And so, but we're at 180 days of partying and showing off his wealth. So we talked about King, King uh, Xerxes, he wasn't humble is the whole point of this was to just show how powerful and wealthy and grand he was. And so for 180 days, he invites all of the most important people from all over the world and says, come and celebrate me. For six months, let me lavish stuff on you so you can celebrate me. But for us... This is where our story actually begins, is at the end of this 180-day party. Because let's see what happens next. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So what do you do when your 180-day celebrating me party is over? Will you throw another party? You get every, say, well, we're not dying. Another seven days. So, so we're going to party for 180, and then you're still not done. Let's go for seven more. It'll be great. And so he throws himself another party for another seven days. And it's interesting because we are given a small insight into this party, but we're given an insight into this party in kind of a weird way because we read about the one command that Xerxes gave to, to, his, to his people, to the people throwing the party, he gives one command. And so we read this in verse 8. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. No one was restricted in how much they were allowed to drink. You could just keep drinking. If you wanted more, the instructions were to get more. And this is the only command we're told about in this part. Undoubtedly, there was others. But specifically, we're told, if anybody wants more wine, the answer is yes. For seven days, the answer is yes. It's not one night. It's not a happy hour. It's not from like four till six or from 10 till midnight or whatever. For seven straight days, if they want more, the answer's yes. And we see that King Xerxes obliged. We read in verse 10, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. Now that term high spirits, if we want to translate it, it could mean happy. It could mean content. It could mean just in good mood, but it can also mean drunk. And we get 
from the context that he probably just wasn't in a good mood. That he was in high spirits from the... They've been drinking for 187 straight days. He's drunk. And we continue to read, we'll continue to read this. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Now, the reason why we have the ellipses there is because to list off the seven eunuchs, and I'm not going to even bother to try and pronounce all their names. So we'll just skip ahead to verse 11. So he commands his seven eunuchs to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So after six months of showing off to the world, six months and seven days, 187 days of look at me, look at my stuff, look at what I've accomplished, there's one thing that the king has left to show off. One thing he hasn't shown off that he saved till the end, his wife, Queen Vashti. Now, it's important to note that when it's recorded that she was to come wearing her royal crown, most scholars would believe that what that really meant was she was supposed to come only wearing her royal crown. That this was the king being demeaning and controlling and abusive towards his wife, that he was telling, in front of all of these men who have been drinking and partying for 187 days, he commands his wife to come and walk in front of all of these people because he can. And so he makes this command, because we, and we know that, that Vashti at this time, she was throwing a a different party for the women of the court. The women weren't invited to the king's court. They had to go to the queen's court. And you can see that in verse 9. But he decides, I'm going to make my wife do this. And so she se he sends a command, sends his eunuchs to go and find his wife. And what we read is this. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Vashti refused to come. She says, I, I am not doing that. No way, no how, not happening. Now we've talked about how Xerxes has just spent 187 days celebrating himself. His wife says no to him. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. The king orders his wife to do this, and she says no. And Xerxes does not take this well. And in fact, there's this really weird moment where, where Xerxes gets all of his, his top officials together. Because they're like, what do we do about this? Like, like what do I, how do I save face in all of this? My, I told my wife she had to do this, and somehow she said no to me. And there's this really, like, awkward like strange kind of weird moment where the concern that the, the officials start to have is they start thinking about, well, what if my wife hears that the king's wife said no? Like, what if this encourages other women to say no? They, they, they can't say no. Well, my life is going to fall apart if my wife starts to tell me no. 
And they become concerned about their own houses. And well, what do we do? We can't, we can't have women standing up for themselves. That's crazy. And that, that becomes the concern is what do we do about this? And it's this crazy concern. And they've been drinking for 187 straight days. And so King Xerxes meets with his royal advisors and asks the question, what do we do? And they decide that if the queen would not come when summoned, then she's no longer queen. And she's banished. And so functionally, Queen Queen Vashti's part in our story is over. That's the end of her in our story. But who will replace her? King can't have a queen, or king can't not have a queen. Well, what other plan would men who've been drinking and partying for 187 straight days come up with other than just having a whole bunch of young women brought to the palace and the king would just simply get to choose one to be his new queen? And in Esther chapter 2, verse 4, we read this. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Shocker. That he he was in favor of this idea. The wealthiest, most powerful man on earth, in a drunken moment, followed foolish advice and made a rash decision. And, And rather than, or that resulted in the dethronement and banishment of his queen, a decree that Vashti could never again enter the king's presence was made public throughout each province in the kingdom and irreversible by the law of the Medes and the Persians. And this is where we're going to stop today. This is our text for today. Amen? Amen. You don't have to say amen to that. (laughs) We've come to this really awkward, weird, this is a weird place to end a sermon. This is a weird text, a weird place to stop because there's no resolution to the story. There's, there's no God moment. There, there's no sort of like, here's what you can take away from this story. I mean, when you go home today and, and somebody says, well, what did you talk about at church today? He said, well, the pastor told us that if we drink for 187 straight days, we're going to make some really poor decisions. That, that, that's a pretty weak stance for us to take. As, well, you know, you really shouldn't drink for six plus months in a row. Yeah, but that's probably good advice. But, but that, this is a weird place to end this sermon. But there's one thing that you may have noticed that we didn't talk at all about this morning. Something that doesn't come up in chapter 1 and in fact isn't going to come up in the entire book of Esther. We didn't talk about God. We haven't talked about God. We haven't seen God in this story. And friends, as we move through the book of Esther, we won't. At least not on the surface. At least not directly. Throughout the whole story of Esther, God never comes up. His name is never Mentioned. See, in this way, this book is a puzzle, seemingly out of place in the Bible. 
There's no mention of the name of God. There's no references to worship. There's no references to faith. There's no prediction of the Messiah. There's no arcs and archetypes of Jesus. There's no mention of heaven or hell. There's no theology that's taught. There's no theology that's received. There's no wisdom. There's no parables. It's just this story. And as we move through this story, we talked about all the main characters of this story. But God's not one of them. In short, there's nothing overly religious about this book. At least not on the surface. But I think, I think that's the point of this book. See, how often have you or I wondered if God's going to show up in my story? How often have you or I ever thought about our lives and thought, is God going to show up in this thing or not? How often have you and I walked through situations and challenges and thought, where is God in any of this? When we walk through hard or confusing seasons of life, in times of doubt or worry, when fear can seem so real, and we're just not sure what God is doing, or not even sure if God is even doing anything, and it's hard to trust in his never-failing presence. See, in these moments, we have stories like the story of Esther that we can hold on to. We have the story of what God did that we can hold on to. And it can build our faith. See, I think, I think there's good theology in being able to say, I can't see him, but I know he's there. In fact, we, we sang that earlier. We sang, even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, I, I know you're there. Even when I can't see him, I know he's there. But so that gives us a question that we need to ask ourselves, even in the chaos of Esther chapter 1. Can we see God in this story? Can we see God in Esther chapter 1? Because... There's certainly nothing here to bring him honor. There, there's certainly no God takeaway. There, there's, how do we apply Esther? You know, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Esther chapter 1. What do we take away from this? But here's... What I believe in the midst of all that was happening in the palace, God was working on behalf of his people. He was committed to his promise to preserve them and keep them from being wiped out. God had already prepared someone to fill the space 
made in the king's household by the banishment of Vashti. Vashti. And that's where we're going to discover Esther. See, here is where, or here is what we can see. We can see our great God coming along in these, these chaotic, where is God kind of moments and picking up these broken pieces and creating some of the most amazing pictures we can ever imagine. See, that's why our sermon series is called Shouts in the Silence. Because as we move through the book of Esther, we're not going to have a moment where we say, and God said, that that's not going to come up. We're not going to have a moment where, where we have this resolution from the Lord. But what we're going to do is we're going to learn how to hear God in the silence. We're going to listen for God's shouts, the things that God is saying to us when it doesn't seem like he's saying anything. We're going to learn to look for God in the moments where we can't seem to find God. We're going to look for God in the chaos of a drunken party thrown by a pagan king and say, now where is God in all of this? And what we're going to discover is that God is present through the entire story of Esther. And it's going to be an encouragement for us because God is going to be shown to be at work in our lives even when we don't know if we can see him. And so as we lean in to hear God speak to us through the seeming silence in the book of Esther, here is the first truth that we can grab a hold of. Even in the chaos, God is in control. Even in the chaos, our God is in control. Small clouds all around Couldn't see your face. Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family. And that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. Promise it still stands, it's chasing out.